Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. We're going to talk some USC Trojan football, talk about the future of college football, the 2020 season. There's some new developments that have been out there. We'll talk about our interview with Matt Leinert. I did earlier this week. Also, Dan Weber talked to USC special teams coach Sean Snyder. And of course, always get to all of your questions. We're going to do that with Keely Yor and Dan Weber. Bring them in in a minute. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can email us podcast at uscfootball.com. Or if you'd rather call or text us, you can do that too. 424-254-9141 is the number. Send us a text. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love to play it on the air. we got some emails to get to uh, later on in the show. And we're going to do that, answering the questions with first Keely, you're on the line. How you doing, Keely? Hello, hello. Glad to be talking to you guys again. Great to talk to you as well. And uh, Dan Weber, how are you? Uh, very good. Uh, sheltering in place here in, uh, in the OC and, uh, and uh, getting kind of bored, uh, I'll be honest. <laughs> I know what you mean, Dan. And uh, we're all in our respective homes. I'm not doing this in, uh, in the uscfootball.com studio. I'm doing this from my house. Uh, no reason besides laziness. It was kind of raining outside. Like, eh, I don't really want to. I could just record this. We didn't have any voicemails. So if you send voicemails in, I have to go into the office. If you don't, then I don't have to because I can just record it from my computer. So if it sounds a little different, uh, my apologies. Uh, before we jump into everything, wanted to thank uh, our sponsor, Trader Joe's. Uh, they've been great to us, man. They're just on the front lines of, of this pandemic. Just you have to get food. That's one of those necessary things. So people talk about the doctors and nurses, all the healthcare professionals and uh, really, the people uh, you know working in the grocery stores, places like Trader Joe's, and like I told you before, my experience there. I know it's kind of sketchy going out sometimes, and people wearing masks and all that. But my experience at Trader Joe's has always been great. So we're really happy. Uh, I mean, we're, we're we're proud of what they've been able to do. We're happy to be associated with Trader Joe's. So hopefully, you get a chance to go check out their stores, and you know, only when necessary, go by yourself. But uh, we we appreciate everything that they've they've done. All right, well, let's jump in and uh, talk about what's going on in the world of college football. Uh, there was our, our friend John Wilner does a great job for the uh, San Jose Mercury News, the Bay Area News Group. He got to talk with uh, Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12. Uh, the, he also broke the news that Larry Scott would be taking a 20% pay cut. You could argue it should be a lot more than that. Uh, the 10% pay cut for some of the other executives they're going to lay off 8% of the workforce at the Pac-12 network. So they're making some cuts in the at the conference level. But his uh, his hotline newsletter that went out today had some interesting stuff in it. I want to run this by you guys because what he was saying is people are talking about will there be a college football season? We all want one. We hope that we're hopeful that there is one. And I know, Dan, you're an advocate of we just don't know at this point. It's people making definitive decisions right now. It doesn't make any sense. John's point was, if you're going to talk about the football season, it's probably not the right idea to talk to actual football people, because according to Larry Scott and a lot of people that are doing this, could you have a college football season if students aren't on campus? So 
having remote uh, learning, it, it doesn't seem like that would work. What they're doing now, you know, what they were doing now. If you couldn't go, have regular students go to campus, how could you have college football players and other athletes on campus practicing fall camp and all that kind of stuff? So he said, you got to talk to the presidents and uh, talk to them. And and they don't really know at this point. And, you know, I, I feel that's the right call. There's going to be a lot of other decisions made between now and July or August. But uh, I wanted to get both of your thoughts on that as far as you couldn't. I think the NFL could happen without fans. I don't know if college football could because without fans, that probably means you can't have students already on campus. And if you don't have students on campus, I don't think you could have a football team go out there and practice. So uh, maybe, Keely, get your thoughts first, and we'll throw it over to Dan. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that uh, when it came to college football, college sports in general, it's going to be completely different to professional <laughs> sports, where this is their job, they're waiting around to go back to playing, and, and the leagues that uh, – they're a part of will do anything in their power to get the, the season going. Whereas with college football specifically, you're tied to academia, you're tied to the presidents who are more often than not more cautious about things just because they have students under their care and the liabilities that come with that. So I agree with that. I think that uh, like Dan has told us, I think no one can say anything definitive right now, but I do think college sports, college football is going to be more on the cautious cautious side rather than the pro sports who are doing everything in their power right now to get some sort of season going. Yeah. I, I think the thing that college football benefits from is it's basically going to be the last one out of the gate. Uh, I mean, you already heard today the plan of major league baseball to maybe put all 30 teams in uh, Phoenix area, use the uh, minor, you know, the uh, spring training ballparks and, you know, figure out, you know, stay in all the hotels and uh you can't do that unless uh you've got uh testing for everybody and i mean and that means everybody in the country you can't just have testing for the major league players while you don't have testing for everybody else so you would need uh universal testing and uh, the immediate kind where they you know they're trying to come up with one where they you know just do a pinprick and uh immediately you get a readout uh and then they'd have to have the kind of treatment where we do see, you know, a, a number of possible even, uh, you know, medicines that are already in existence for other diseases. And if you had enough of those uh, where you could treat people and within a couple of days, five days, whatever, uh, you could basically get rid of all the, you know, coronavirus symptoms and that. Uh, so you, you really need that. Major League Baseball is going to need that. Uh, but you would think, uh, along with that, you're going to have the NBA and the NHL figure out how to get back and get their playoffs done. Uh, the NFL, you know, they're not giving up this season. So they're going to be doing something, you know, to get back for camp in, in the middle of the summer. So college football has the ability to learn from what all these uh, other sports have done, how they're going to handle things. Uh, I think it will be uh, – a consideration of whether there are students on campus or not. Uh, I think you could probably uh, start practicing in the summer uh, while they're still in online classes. I think you have to eventually believe that they're going to have some sort of fall on campus classes. But uh, but what people I don't think realize is that, that uh, uh, at Washington, Oregon, 
UCLA, for example, the schools on the quarter system, they don't have students on campus for almost all of September. And they're, you know, playing home games. And that's one of the problems of poor UCLA. Uh, they don't have the band there. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough for them when they play their September game. So it has been done where uh, teams are playing games without, without the, the students on campus right at that moment. But uh, it's hard for me to envision two things. One, uh, I'm starting to see some uh, enrollment numbers for schools like uh, Miami of Ohio, where their, their uh, fall enrollment looks like it's down uh, 20% based on the possibility of not coming back. I think, boy, I think the schools would be taking it. I mean, obviously, they have to take that chance if we don't have it, you know, squared away medically. We don't have the testing. We don't have the, uh, you know, the medicine. There, you don't have a choice. But if I, it's hard to imagine that if all of that is taken care of, that they would be overly cautious and not bring people back to school. I just, I find that that would be taking a big risk, I think, uh, for the long-term health of colleges. Um, if kids say, gee, do I need to be spending $67,000 a year for tuition and I could be taking online, you know, courses and, and what have you. Uh, so I think that'll be mostly worked out. I, I, I have the, you know, kind of this optimistic sense that a lot of it will be worked out for the colleges in advance. And the second part of the college issue is how do you consider uh, con continue intercollegiate sports at most of the, at certainly the big colleges, without the uh, income that college football uh, produces. But again, I don't think, I agree with Keeley, they can't do it without fans in the stands. Uh, I mean, that is the essence, I think, of, of college football, is bringing all those people, you know, alums and, you know, fans and students and, and, and everybody uh, together in one place. And uh, so that they do have to get, get it all worked out, but... I'm not as negative about it as I think some people are. I, I just think a lot of things will be worked out for college football before uh, we get to that, you know, point in July, let's say, when you have to make the, you know, the final decision. Yeah, I think we're at a point where it's just so early. April's going to be an important month. Um, I think fatigue is going to start to set in. You know, people, everyone, we want you to all stay safe. Uh, you know, stay at home. Don't spread the virus around, wash your hands, all those things. But I think if you're talking another two, three weeks from now, maybe there's the peak in that point. I mean, you see different models and they all seem to be wrong, but whatever. It just, you know, we'll, we'll know as far as cases and stuff go. And we're already starting to see sports dip their toe into the water. College football doesn't have to, they can wait until everyone else is in and you figure out what's going on. But you saw WWE events this weekend. You know, the Masters is saying they're going to come back. Uh, in the fall, you know, see some golf events. I think NASCAR, there's there's different sporting events that are going to get out there. I think even in South Korea, they started doing uh, baseball games. Um, so it's we're going to start see it to see it creep back in. And I think it has to get to, there's going to be a tipping point where is the is the virus completely eradicated? But is it, you know, maybe not, but it's it's mostly gone. And, you know, you're going to you have to start weighing the economic implications of everything going on to open the country back up again. So I, I think there's a lot, we're a long way off. There's got a lot of things happen between now and then I'm more of an optimistic person like you, Dan, I think, I, I think there's going to be a college football season, but we just don't know at this point. So curious to see how it all unfolds, but 
the more you see sports kind of, like I said, dipping their toe in the water and trying to come back, the better it's going to be because you need all those things to kind of happen to allow, you know, college football to be able to open the door and say, hey, we're going to we're going to have our season, too. You know, and we do put up with uh, the regular influenza that comes every year and kills 30 to 60,000 people every single year. And it's passed, you know, from one person to the next. And nobody gives that even a second thought when they're going to a college football game. I mean, and uh, chances are, you know, there won't be as many people, you know, as terrible as it is, uh, uh, killed by, uh, you know, the coronavirus. Looking at the current trend, there won't be any more, let's say, than, a, you know, a bad flu season. And that's before, you know, we get the vaccine. So, so I mean, we've learned to live with the flu every year. You know, it comes and it, it you know, takes down a lot of people. Uh, and we just keep going on. And it's not something that, you know, shuts down the whole economy. Uh, and I think coronavirus will, will get to be that, get to that place. I mean, it's amazing. In doing this story about the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, that you know killed 195,000 people in one month in October of 1918. Uh, once they got through it, they never talked about it. They never looked back. I mean, I would guess. I don't know you guys' history books, but I don't think it was ever mentioned in anything I ever read in 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 history books because they just they they got past it and they said we're not looking back. And it killed enough Americans that if you looked at it by today's population, it would have been more than 2 million Americans in 1918 and 1919. And they got by it and they just kept on going. And as much of a you know big deal as the coronavirus is right now, uh, I think that's kind of more the way America does things is you get by it, you figure out how to get through it, uh, and you just go on and you don't you know dwell uh, that much in the past. So, and I think college football has the opportunity, you know, with school starting and everything else in September to kind of be one of those moments where you are able to, uh, get it going and say, we've gotten that behind us and we're moving on. I mean, again, that's, uh, that's just reading into it as, as optimistic a take as I can read, but, uh, that's kind of been the way, uh, you know, America has kind of approached things. Yeah. It, obviously, we want everyone to be safe. You don't want to put people in danger for the sake of sports. But there will become a point where, yeah, is, is everything, is it completely eradicated or is there going to be a spot case here and there? Uh, and is that enough to shut everything down again? So there's going to be some decisions made along those lines. I think the NBA really set this off and, and I think helped America by starting the shelter and play stuff and everything, you know, by shutting down the season, people took it seriously. It shut down March Madness, all those kind of things. I think the NBA can be maybe a catalyst going the other way too. If they end up doing something where like, Hey, they all go to Vegas. They all stay in hotels. Everyone's secluded for a while and they have the playoffs in some format and everyone's there tested in this like kind of bubble environment. If you do that, I think that could open doors for other, other sports leagues to do things too. Yeah, and, and, and in that scenario, if somebody gets sick, what's they're gonna get sick. You know, if the hotel bellboy, you know, gets sick or carrying their team bags or whatever, uh, or any of the players, you just get them treated 
and and you get them through it, which means you got to have enough treatment. Uh, you may not have the vaccine to prevent it, but you've got enough treatment that you're convinced it's not going to go to the you know the, the respiratory dis- you know distress syndrome where they got to put you on a ventilator. If you get to that point, uh, it'll become more of a normal thing. Like okay, somebody you know came down with the flu. You get them treated and you get them back. And uh, uh, I think that's what these leagues going to uh, going first can show you is uh, you don't have to worry that everybody has to stay safe, uh, that, you know, if somebody does get sick, it's going to be OK and it's going to be treated and, and they'll be back uh, uh, and, and doing well. Uh, that's not what we can do right now, right now. Well, and much of the country, we can kind of have a pretty good feeling. I mean, obviously in California, but in New York City, where they get all the publicity and all the network news are and all of that, they're in, you know, in the, with uh, New Jersey and Connecticut, they're in terrible shape. And that makes it look like, you know, uh, could it be sort of nationwide? But, you know, if you look at the hospitals in New York City and let's say compare them to the hospitals in Orange County, I mean, the hospitals in Orange County, the last we were told is they're under capacity. Uh, they're under their normal capacity for this time of year. Uh, so, you know, you just got a lot of different, you know, considerations when you look at the whole country. Yeah. Keely, any thoughts? Well, I was just thinking about how last week Dan kind of came up with the whole Las Vegas uh, idea for the Pac-12, I believe. And so now that it looks like the MLB is looking at Arizona, Dan, do you still think that could be a viable option to do a type of Las Vegas situation? Well, I think it only would be if, for example, California said, we're going to play it extra safe and we're not going to let anybody have any uh, gatherings of more than 10 people uh, for the month of August, let's say. At that point, and let's say Washington, Oregon, Arizona all say, hey, we got this thing whipped, uh, Utah, uh, even Colorado. Uh, if that happened, you might say that the four California schools might want to consider, you know, going to Las Vegas for training camp and, and preseason. And even if you had to play a, a game or two there, let's say. But I said it would only be in that circumstance where California uh, would say, we want to be extra cautious and not let you get together for the month of August. And rather than scrap the season, I think you'd have to be uh, quick, nimble-footed enough to figure out, well, what are our options here? And I think that would be one of them in that scenario. Um, like I said, I'm optimistic about stuff. But the, the issue, the biggest issue I see, I mean, if even if things start to get under control, is that college football is such a regional sport and what happens if you're seeing cases like spike in Alabama or Texas like later on than some of the other states? Because, you know, that, and that was happening where, hey, California's already through it. In the, in the East Coast, like mostly they're done with it. It was bad for a while. The curve was flattened and then, you know, you're coming off of it now. But if there's a certain state or two that, you know, are prominent in college football and they're having a later uh, surge or a later effect – how that could impact everything else. So those schools in those states, because we're seeing every governor make different rules and regulations and all things like that. Um, I mean, we don't know if all, there's not like a czar of college football. We're not going to say everything's opened up. 
if, you know, maybe California is not letting the students go back to school, but most other states are or something vice versa. I think that's where we could run into problems because it's such there's so it's so spread out. There's such a regional sport and there's not like someone running it like a Roger Goodell making the call. There really isn't that in college football. Yeah, I think that's where uh, you need universal uh, immediate testing so that <clears throat> even if you do have a hot spot, you've got a sense of exactly what is the issue. And you have to have then the ability to treat every single person that tests for it and, and get them over it quickly. Uh, failing that, you would, you would have you know, more difficulty as like the NBA was shut down basically for one guy. Uh, on, you know, Rudy Gobert on the, you know, Utah Jazz. And uh, you don't want to be in a situation where one area or whatever can can basically, uh, you know, close things down. So you have to have the testing and the treatment. Uh, without that, uh, you'd be, uh, you know, be walking on thin ice, I think, because uh, anything, anything could, could, you know, cause a, a shutdown. And, yeah. and, you know, you can't, but I think they'll be so far past that, you know, for example, if Houston Rockets and the Dallas Mavericks are already playing home games in Texas, it's hard to even imagine uh, that there won't be college football, uh, you know, and, and that ought to happen in the spring, I would think. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think we'll see, but uh uh, college football is lucky in that in this scenario, it's pretty much the last sport to get started when you look at all the, you know, all the things that are going to happen. I mean, the day, for example, <clears throat> that the uh, USC is supposed to play Alabama September 5th, that afternoon, they're expecting, uh, you know, 140,000 people at Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby. So, you know. I mean, you almost can't hold the Kentucky Derby. I know they're having racing without people in the stands, but there's almost no point in holding the Kentucky Derby without people there. I mean, in, in every single way you think about it. So uh, you would think that college football in Texas will get started that night if they've already run the Kentucky Derby, you know, in Louisville in that in the afternoon would be my take. In for the 2020 season, is this something where we could see a bigger focus on conferences versus, you know, there's a plan where you kind of get rid of the non-conference games, you focus on the conferences, that way you do have some type of leader, you have a Larry Scott leader, in quotes, uh, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> not to be too By the way, by the way I, I, not to interrupt, but I'm in favor of a 100% pay reduction for Larry Scott. <laughs> and the same thing for the Pac-12 network, having talked to some TV guys who said the first thing they would do is scrap the network and let the schools handle their own their own broadcast and save all that money. But anyway, that's a side issue. Really. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. No, but you're I, fine. But I, my point was just like, could you just see a focus on conferences, conference play? That way, you could possibly push the season back to October, have September be a, a practice month, and then just have a conference champion at the end of the season, whereas you still have football. It's not the football we know at this point in this era, but it's still some semblance of, of football. I, I think you can buy some time that way, like if you if you need another month or so. But that's probably about it. And to, but to me, though, you could have – that could be a way to expand the playoff, where if you say every conference, go figure out – you have eight weeks. Go figure out your champion. 
you, you can have a game a week, however you want to do it. Every conference does it their own way. Come out with a champion, and we're going to have like a six-team playoff. We'll allow like, you know, the, the best group of five we see out there or whatever it is and have some kind of like expanded playoff. I think that would be interesting, but that's only if it's need to be delayed like a month or so. If you have to go more than that, I, to me, it seems more likely they would cancel the season. I couldn't see college football starting in like, uh, you know, November or something. I think at that point, it's just the schedules are so just crazy and try to integrate them all. I just have a hard time picturing that happening. So to me, the most likely scenario, the, the best scenario is college football starts on time. If it's delayed a little bit, I think it gets super complicated. See, I think college football already has a built-in uh, cushion the month of December. I mean, I mean, we know there are some you know cold weather uh, in schools that might have some issues, but I think you could bounce uh, college football back a month and almost not change anything. I mean, you could have the conference championship games played, uh, you know, January 1st and, uh, you know, have your playoffs and still finish up before the NFL finishes in February with the Super Bowl. So I think college football already is, is pretty safe in terms of, uh, you know, if they've got to give up a month on the front end or they think they do, uh, I think they could still get the, you know, the entire season in and you'd hate to give up those, you know, non I mean, I'd hate to see USC give up Alabama and Notre Dame uh, next, uh, you know, season. That that would be that'd be a tough way to go, and it'd be a big financial hit because USC gets a big bunch of money out of the Alabama game, and then the Notre Dame game's a home game. So uh, that'd be a big hit, I would think. Uh, I think they, I think they could do it in December just by moving everything back. I, I really do. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Um... Well, let's move on. Maybe some little happier topics. Uh, we're doing a new feature at uscfootball.com during this whole quarantine, just trying to figure out, you know, we can't cover some of the things we normally cover. So we're trying, you know, come up with some different things. Dan's been, we're going to talk about uh, Dan's story. He talked to uh, Sean Snyder uh, this week. So he's, he's doing features on all the new assistant coaches. I came up with lunch with a Trojan, just kind of someone associated with USC football in some way doesn't have to be a former player, but we started off with a former player. And uh, Matt Leinert was nice enough to come on, you know, USC's Heisman Trophy winner and uh, college football Hall of Famer. He was just inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame and was at the Rose Parade uh, back in January. But um, got to have him on. Uh, we did a live show like we do for Tunnel Vision. It was just myself and, and Matt. And it was a, almost an hour we had him on. And a lot of, inter- I mean, he had some interesting things to say. He's pretty optimistic about the current team. Likes Keaton Slovis a lot. He gave some thoughts on JT Daniels, and you know he's another modern day guy. Um, you know he thinks the defense is going to be better. He thinks that the Trojans can win the Pac-12 this year with all the talent they have coming back. But we had some fun conversations too. He talked about Pete Carroll being like the dirtiest basketball player, pickup basketball player you could imagine, and um, you know how basketball was so important to them as football players. How competitive they get. They're doing him and Kurt Warner are doing like challenges over uh you know social media you know hitting 10 shots in a row or things like that so it was kind of interesting just to kind of get a feel for what he's doing right now he's doing like peloton rides against um you know like booger mcfarland and and guys like that and he just had a new baby uh, a few weeks ago too so uh i hope you guys enjoy it check it out and we're putting up some other stories he had some interesting things to say about reggie bush keely can kind of talk about that maybe uh but I, i thought it was a fun conversation and we're going to have Jake Olson on later on the week, so make sure you check back for that. 
But uh, Keely, maybe you want to talk about the Reggie Bush stuff and anything that stood out to you uh, during that interview. Yeah, no, it was a great interview. I thought it was interesting. He still can't watch the fourth quarter of of the 2006 <laughs> game. He he said that he knows. I thought it was interesting. He knows every play before it's going to happen, and and he was telling you how he watched it with his wife for the first time, and he was like giving all the behind the scenes kind of details. And I was like, oh, I wish we could have seen that because that would have been really cool. Yeah. Um, his wife doesn't really know football, so she doesn't even know what a Heisman Trophy is. So it's kind of different. He's not like he married someone that really knew what he did or what he, you know, what he does. Yeah, which he sounded like he enjoyed that, so that's good for them. But yeah, he was talking about Reggie Bush, and he essentially said it's time uh, for Reggie to return. He was saying that he did a lot of research into that like ten-year statute about how long uh, the NCAA can really ban someone. Um, so he was saying basically it's time for Reggie Bush to come back and how important he is just to the the world of college football and to USC. And he, he told you a funny story about how Reggie went around to college football media days last summer. And this generation of college football players are still enamored with him and, and starstruck with it by him. And, and you can tell, I mean, that Utah game, all the USC players, all the fans, just seeing Reggie Bush back in the Coliseum was a crazy moment. So, of course, it would be nice for USC to to get uh, Reggie back in some way, shape, or form. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, Any, uh, anything stand out to you? Yeah, or? no, I, I, that's a, uh, I like the story about uh, Leinert and uh, Matt and his wife, who doesn't know football, because it's there's a famous story, Southern California story. Uh, the late, great Tom Harmon, you know, old number 98 for Michigan, one of the greatest Heisman uh, Trophy winners ever, and who was a uh, uh, the top sportscaster in Southern California, you know, for the in the 40s and the 50s. And uh, he married an actress. Uh, I think and, and he's the, the uh, Mark Harmon's dad, you know, Tom Harmon. And uh, he married an actress. And uh, one of their kids is Mark Harmon. Uh, you know, who everybody knows from all the TV stuff. And uh, he, uh, after he got married, he, uh, and he had told his wife about his Heisman Trophy. And you guys were talking about, she doesn't even know what a Heisman Trophy is. And, uh, you know, why it should be on the mantle. And it's really a big deal. And she's looking at it like, are you sure? You know, didn't know a thing. So finally, so after they get married, uh, he gets an invitation to go uh, uh, for dinner, uh, one of the first dinners out after they're married, for uh, one of his friends from Ohio State, a guy named Les Horvath, who was a dentist and who also had won a Heisman Trophy. And so they go over to the house, and there's on the mantle the same exact trophy that Tom Harmon had told his wife was so special. And she looked at him and said, I thought you said that was special. Everybody's got one of these things. And it's like kind of a cool story where, you know, Tom Harmon uh, had, you know, built up his husband as he should have. But his wife had no idea. She just said, huh. it's like everybody's got one of those things. But uh, but that's what's uh, I think it's pretty cool that Reggie, you know, they may have made him give it back. Uh but they didn't really take it away from him. And it's interesting. This is the last generation, I would think, of players. When you think back to about, you know, 2005, these guys were like four and five years old when Reggie was playing. So does it go back farther than that? I don't know. But it is pretty interesting that you've got kids that are in college now who are just four and five years old when Reggie was playing and that they still have that obvious connection to Reggie. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
No, it definitely is. Uh, so make sure you check it out. There's some some cool stories. He he gave uh, Keely had asked me about uh, to ask him about some of his underrated moments as far as you know because there's some big moments obviously. Um, and he went through he went on a pretty long list of of kind of some of his favorite moments and stuff from his uh, college career. He talked about you know crying before the uh, UCLA game um, his senior year because it was the last game of the Coliseum and Pete Carroll giving him crap about crying and then bringing it up before the, the, the Rose bowl against Texas. Like you're going to cry again. Cause it's your last college game. So um, it's funny. Just the, just, I mean, there was so much talent on those teams and uh, just some of the, the stories that he can tell and some of the other players from that can tell are, are, are great. So hopefully you go check it out. This just something we try to get to you behind the scenes a little bit during this, uh, you know, quarantine pandemic and all that stuff. And, you know, he, he talked about the virtual NFL draft, what it would mean to not have spring football, how important that stuff is. Um, so there's a, you know, I just, and playing in front of no fans. He talked about like a, a really tough Stanford game they had during his career because there's hardly any fans in the stands. And I'm like, well, what would it be like now? What if they had to play in front of no fans? And he, he was having a hard time just picturing something like that happening, how, how important the crowd is to an athlete when they're out there, just the energy you get from it. Well, you know, that carries over to the fact that when he was here, uh, they had crowds at practice and Pete wanted crowds at practice and he wanted the fans that were there watching as close to the action as possible because he wanted them, you know, performing under, you know, those conditions where, you know, people were watching you and uh, and you had to perform. And I do think it was great insight about Pete uh, and the uh, the competitiveness of their basketball sessions. Because the basketball didn't matter at all. I mean, whether you were good or bad or whatever, they just went after you, uh, you know, just to compete. And not so much compete to be, you know, a really good basketball player, but to win. And and obviously, Pete made all the calls and, and had, you know, all the rules, decisions, and what have you. But they were just, you know, out and out, uh, you know, competitive bloodbaths, you know, at noontime. Uh, and, and Pete, again, set the tone that it was always about competition and, uh, you'd see them coming out after, uh, you know, after lunch, after one of the basketball sessions and they looked like, you know, they'd been playing rugby, uh, or something. I mean, it, they really went after one another. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, make sure you check that stuff out. Uh, also Dan just put up his story. Uh, this is Tuesday. We're recording this. So he put up his story on uh, Sean Snyder, and uh, who's actually a, a SoCal native. I didn't realize that, but now, uh, oh, Dan, maybe you want to give a little overview of that, and if Keely has some questions, I know she was checking it out earlier. Yeah, uh, it was kind of neat that, that Sean was born here. His dad, uh, a Missouri native, Bill Snyder, who, a Hall of Fame coach, one of only four uh, coaches ever to be a hall in the Hall of Fame and be playing in a, in a stadium named for him. Uh, which is kind of neat. Uh, you, you can't be in the Hall of Fame as, if you're still coaching unless you're 75 or over. So Bill Snyder was able to get into, into the Hall of Fame. And it's interesting, Sean actually is part of the naming of the Kansas State Stadium because they wanted to name it for Bill Snyder. And Bill Snyder said, nope, you, I want it named the Snyder Family uh, Stadium. So that's what it is. So actually, you... Uh, USC's new uh, uh, special teams coordinator has a st- uh, actually coached in a stadium that was named after him and his family. Uh, 
So, uh, and he was born in Anaheim. <clears throat> he says he's going to find out from his dad. He said, all I know is uh, where we lived. His dad uh, came out as a, a coach at Indio High School. Then he moved uh, to uh, USC as a grad assistant. And then he went back to Indio as a head coach. And then he, he became the first head coach at uh, uh, Foothills High School in Santa Ana, where they were four years. And that's when Sean was born uh, in uh, uh, in Anaheim. And he said all he knows about his house is uh, from the photos that they have when he was little is they had a swimming pool. And he said, I'm going to check with my dad, find out exactly where that house is. And I'm going to go by and, and see uh, see the house where he was there for like until he was four. And then uh, he's been at, you know, uh, Manhattan, Kansas. They call it little app, the little apple. And uh, he's been there 30 years, basically. He got a couple. He was an All-American punter uh, at Kansas State. Uh, he had a couple of shots at the Chargers and the Cardinals as a punter. And I think was behind one Hall of Fame punter and uh, ended up uh, going back to Kansas State as a, you know, did every job possible. Part-time assistant, you know, grad assistant, director of football operations, all the jobs until uh, he... Uh, he became a special teams coordinator uh, from 2011 to 2018. And three times, I think three times he was a special teams coordinator of the year nationally had uh, team uh, special teams ranked first, second, and third. Uh, uh, he was the consensus all American punter in uh, 92 uh, where he averaged 44.7 yards a punt. So he's about as qualified a guy as USC could have ever gotten and he decided when his dad retired in 2018, he went back into administration and he wanted he wants to be back coaching on the field. So I guess he had talked to Texas and Nebraska and then Clay called him and he decided this is the place he wanted, you know, wanted to be. So uh, he's uh, he's out here. He said he had a 10 minute commute in uh, Manhattan He's got about a 40-minute commute from uh, Palos Verdes now. And he said, that's not bad, like 22 miles. And he said everything is much easier than people said it was going to be such a big adjustment. He said it really hasn't been. Now, he comes in at 6 in the morning uh, when they're able to be in the office. And he said the one thing that surprises him about Southern California is how many people are on the road at 6 in the morning. He said, you just... You don't think that that's the way it's going to be. And I, I told him a lot of people are on uh, East Coast time uh, to some extent. You know, if you're a securities trader or whatever, you uh, you kind of got to be going by East Coast time. So uh, he was uh, surprised by that. But uh, he loves the staff. Uh, he knew some of those guys in the Big 12. But he, uh, he said they really have a lot of fun. Uh, he loves it that, uh, you know, we saw it when he, they started working on special teams that, uh, uh, Todd Orlando and Craig Nivar and, and Vic Soto, uh, all jumped in and started grabbing guys and moving them and doing things. And he said, you know, there are too many moving parts for just one guy to be coaching special teams. And he said, that's what we really, he said, I think we have to all be in on this and, uh, so he he loved that part of it uh, that he's seen so far, but uh, he's uh, he's really uh, likes what he's seeing. He thinks USC has got a lot of athletes. He said, that's one thing you notice uh, how many athletes there are. And uh, I told him one of the ones we hadn't seen and we realized is a big time athlete is Gary Bryant. 
and I talked about all the things that I was seeing just in day one uh, from the quick, you know, quick twitch, uh, real good hands, toughness, and all that. And he said, "You're seeing exactly what I'm seeing." So uh, he likes the idea of having, you know, the veterans who are, uh, you know, Tyler Vaughns and Amon Ra as possibilities. But he uh, he really likes the idea of working with Gary Bryant, and he just thinks, you know, the world of uh, Ben Griffiths. Uh, what a tremendous leg he's got, and how much accuracy. And he 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 kind of said that he thought last year was just an adjustment year from Aussie rules football that there was just some mechanical things that in, in games that it's just enough different from Aussie rules football that, uh, that he needed that one year to kind of get it under, under his belt. And then he thinks he's just going to be, uh, you know, phenomenal, uh, punter, uh, to work with. So, and he's, he talked about how much depth there is, you know, you got three, you know, three veteran place kickers in terms of, you know, uh, uh, Michael Brown, and, uh, you know, oh, gosh, uh, Chase, McGrath. Uh, Chase, I'm trying to think. And then the, uh, uh, Alex, uh, uh, the uh, kickoff guy, Stathouse. So you, huh? Stathouse, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so you basically got three starters who've been place kickers. And then you bring in the uh, Parker Lewis, the, you know, the big time, uh, you know, Arizona recruits. And uh, he said the one thing they've done. He said they've done a pretty good job of getting, uh, you know, punters and kickers here. Uh, there's a lot to work with. So uh, he's very upbeat about, uh, uh, you know, where things stand with USC. And the other thing he said is in the dressing, for example, USC was 12th in the Pac-12 in kickoff coverage, and they were 130th out of 130 nationally in kickoff coverage and uh, allowing uh, long kickoff return. And he said – You've got to go full speed in practice. You've got to, uh, without going full speed, you yourself as a covered person don't exactly know where you are, and you absolutely don't know where you are in relation to your teammates on the field. And he said, you just, you have no choice. You have to go all out game speed every single time you do something in practice. So that's just another another one of the uh, declarations from, uh, the new assistant coaches that practice is going to look different. Did he mention um, how they're adjusting to remote training? I feel like special teams is a is a harder thing. It's hard in general to to train remotely, but special teams in general seems like a harder task. Yeah, he does talk to. For example, he said he talks. I don't know about the the team stuff. I I, I don't think there is almost any way you can do the 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 coverage stuff and 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 you know, blocking for place kicks and that, but he does like keep up. He said, I probably talk two or three times a week to, you know, Ben Griffiths. And, uh, so they do, they do a lot of talking, but you're right. Uh, a special team, you got the, the interesting part of special team. <clears throat> a lot of it they can do on their own. And a lot of it they can only do with everybody there. And so, you're right. I, I, I did not ask him about that, uh, Keely, but I think you're right. Uh, special teams might be impacted, you know, maybe more than more than anybody in, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, I, I just think, he, you know, they have the sense that we can make up for lost time, that there's plenty of time, uh, you know, to make up for it. But uh, he, he sure, you know, feels like USC's got a chance to they've got the athletes to to be 
really good. He said one thing I will guarantee, they will get better. Uh, so whenever that happens, he said they, they will get better. All right. Uh, well, those are the, the main topics we wanted to address today, but we still have some questions. Uh, Keely, you want to jump into those? Yeah, let's jump into it. First off, we got an email from Mark who said, Hi, Ryan and Dan. I just saw that Spectrum just reached a deal with AT&T regarding the broadcasting of the Dodgers. Do you think this will move Larry Scott to cut a deal on the Pac-12? Mark. I don't know that there's a deal to be cut with uh, direct DirecTV. I just, you know, they lost their deal with AT&T. And so um, I just think now that it's coming to the end of the, uh, you know, the original contract, I mean, you know, the poison pill is such that if U.S. or if the Pac-12, you know, makes any kind of a deal that DirecTV would be willing to make for, as a, you know, and DirecTV is not going to throw a lot of money at it, that would require uh, that they uh, adjust all the deals with everybody else they have. And that would probably, you know, that's been the, you know, the hold up the whole time is that they don't feel like they can afford the hit that they would take financially from all the other deals having to come down to the level that they'd have to, uh, you know, go to to get direct TV. And, you know, it was one of the, you know, the major rookie negotiating mistakes that they made in the in originally uh, setting up the TV deal. And uh, I just, I don't even think they understood how valuable uh, direct TV would be and and would have been and they just didn't understand that and they were so busy trying to you know hold on to all the other original deals that uh you know direct tv fell through the cracks which is hard to believe if you know what you're doing that you allow that to happen but yeah i don't think there's any any shot uh uh before the new contract uh to get uh direct tv on board they direct tv you know, their largest group of uh, subscribers is in Southern California, and yet they have not felt the need uh, to jump on board with USC. Now, if USC was the USC of, you know, 2003, 4, 5, 6, that might have changed. But, you know, since, you know, the Pac-12 has come into being and Larry Scott has been involved, USC hasn't been exactly must-see programming uh, that would force DirecTV to rethink uh what it's doing yeah i I think i mean because these are unprecedented times we don't know what the landscape's going to be like but the pac-12 network does have all these i think it's like a contract for 850 live events a year across all seven platforms i don't know if you're going to be able to meet that because of all this um so i think there's going to be some changing but also with the cord cutting is it going to get even worse now because a lot of people have cable because of the live sports are people going to go with streaming services even more uh, I, I mean i think there's a lot of things that are going to be up in the air we had a question on our podcast of champions like is this going to help position larry scott who fully owns his pac-12 networks uh for the you know negotiations in 2024 when it, the the contract runs out i think this has like lowered the the bar for everybody like i don't think any of the tv contracts are going to be as good so it's sort of like the Pac-12 was waiting for this huge payday uh, or it's like you're trying to sell your house in the neighborhood and everything's surging. All the, the housing prices are going up, but you you have a contract and you can't sell it like you have. But maybe you have a tenant leasing your house 
and the, the, the lease is another, you know, three or four years, but the, the market's going up at, man, when I get to sell this house, it's going to be worth a lot. But then the market crashes and you still can't sell your house. Um, all those people that were selling around you made money. You're probably not going to make as much money at this point. I kind of think that's where the Pac-12 is. So maybe they get some kind of deal done, but I just think because the whole landscape is changing, it's not going to be good financially to whatever they end up doing. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was Larry Scott trying to justify what they had done and uh, and saying, well, the payday is going to be down the road here. And it was, you know, kind of, you know, blowing smoke, I think, mostly. I think the better opportunity, if we're looking at it strictly at USC, is for the Pac-12 to do what the Big 12 does and give all the, you know, third-tier rights back to each school. And, and, and you know, deep six the Pac-12 network. There's not a school in the Pac-12 that doesn't have their own TV uh, ability to te- televise their own games. And if you want to watch every soccer game from USC, USC can do that. <clears throat> but the thing that, that the Big 12 has done so well is they allow Texas and Oklahoma and all those schools to sell any games that aren't network on television, any uh, uh, football, and all the basketball games, for example, that aren't, aren't a part of the network deal. If you took out, for example, all of USC's uh, non-Pac-12 network games, you know, maybe that's half the schedule. USC could sell all the rest of those games. And now in the Pac-12, there are people like Washington State saying, you know, we wouldn't make a dime if we were selling our, you know, local games. But USC would make a bunch. Uh, in the Pac- or in the Big 12, you see schools making up as much as $15 million with Texas and, and Oklahoma, $10 million, over and above what they're getting back from their network TV deal, uh, you know, with ABC and Fox and ESPN uh, for their own, you know, third tier rights. USC could do that. Uh, And I'm thinking USC is probably going to have to negotiate very hard uh, with the Pac-12 to say, that's what we want to do. We do not want to be in a a deal where we get almost nothing from the Pac-12 network itself. And we could get so much more on our own. I think, you know, whatever, if you got new bidders in for the, uh, you know, the rights that ABC and Fox and, you know, uh, ESPN have, I think USC is going to have to push really hard to get control of their own radio and TV rights uh, as much as possible. And uh, I think that's the direction it has to go. And, you know, that'll benefit, you know, USC, UCLA. The Bay Area schools, uh, Arizona State, uh, and Washington, and Oregon, just because they're Oregon, but it'll hurt, you know, five or six of them, five of them anyway. And uh, I just don't know how you can do anything to help uh, the schools, you know, like USC, if you don't turn over the rights to uh, to USC. While we're on the topic of deals, we have an email from Andy from Calgary, Alberta, who says, Hello, Dan and the USCfootball.com crew. Dan has mentioned USC's bad deal with Nike. Could he elaborate on that? Maybe even compare the Ohio State slash Michigan Nike contracts or UCLA's and Notre Dame's Under Armour deals. Thanks and fight on. Andy from Calgary, Alberta. Yeah, Andy, we understand it's about $5 million, but the problem was it was signed so long ago. It was $5 million at a time when 
USC uh, deserved a lot more than that, uh, just based on history and, and, and exposure and all that kind of thing. I think UCLA at the top end was worth almost $18 million a year with Under Armour. It's a bad deal for Under Armour, obviously, uh, and nobody else is that it's the best deal in the country and nobody else is going to get that. And UCLA opened up at just the right time and they negotiated pretty well. They went through Adidas and then uh, got a bump with Adidas and then got a bump with, um, uh, you know, with Under Armour. And it's amazing because, you know, USC, the potential uh, for, uh, you know, a shoe, you know, and a uniform deal is much more with USC than UCLA just because football matters so much more, although they sell more basketball shoes, but football gives you the exposure. Um, I will say that one good piece of news uh, I just saw, Clemson, as good as they've done uh, recently, is still right below USC in terms of their, uh, their. I guess they're still, they're Nike, but they, wow. they don't. They don't quite because they haven't renegotiated yet, and maybe haven't haven't quite got there. And and you know, Clemson, what seven eight years ago was nothing. I mean, just you know, they weren't anything special at all. Um, so they're still they still haven't quite caught up. Uh, and USC actually makes more money off football than Clemson does. Even well, they're, they're doing a, they uh, Forbes magazine does it, and I'm gonna do a story on this, but they do a, like a three-year rolling average of, uh, you know, football income and who are the most valuable, you know, football programs in the country. And USC is still more valuable than Clemson, uh, as hard as that may be to believe. But it's way, way, way behind Texas and Texas A&M and Ohio State and Alabama and, and schools like that. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Notre Dame was hard. I mean, they're a private school like USC. It's hard to uh, to get what their numbers are, but Notre Dame doesn't do a whole lot of dumb stuff financially. So I'm guessing, you know, their new, uh, you know, shoe deal is is pretty good uh, compared to USC's. We keep hearing that. Uh, I've heard already that Nike has made a new proposal to USC that's for much more money, uh, but. My understanding is USC said, yeah, that's smart for Nike. They know what a good deal they've gotten, but we're not going there yet. Uh, we're not going to go, uh, you know, and jump at even at more money. That's not as much money as, as we really should be getting. So uh, uh, we'll see how that how that plays out. I think USC will obviously do a better job than they did last time. I mean, I just it's almost impossible to imagine how they got a bad deal with Nike. I mean, Phil Knight, you know, was, was very close to John McKay, who came from Oregon. Uh, one of the deals, if you see the uh, the John McKay statue, where uh, Keely and I do the uh, instant analysis a lot of the time, uh, he's wearing Nike football shoes with the swoosh. Well, the I mean, when, when uh, John McKay coached, Nike wasn't making football shoes, and there were no shoes with the swoosh. But I think that was part of the deal. I have to think that Phil uh, Knight probably paid for that statue. And I think one of the deals was, if you're going to do a John McKay statue, you're going to put him in Nike shoes with a swoosh. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, USC's had a long relationship. I mean, I think John McKay was Nike's first ever football coach. Uh, 
But uh, I think Nike, and I think the guy that runs Nike now is a USC law school graduate. Uh, so the, I think he's executive vice president. I wish I could come up with his name right now. But USC's got some ends with Nike that you would think they would be able to call upon to make some good things happen. Interesting fun facts from Dan there. Uh, yeah. We have a trivia question from our buddy Dan, class of 1962, who says, Hi, Keely, Dan, and Ryan. A little sports trivia. Who was the noblest Trojan of them all, and how is he linked to Mike Garrett? Hint, he was Howard Jones' first quarterback when he arrived at USC in the mid-20s, was a consensus All-American in 1927, and the first 1,000-yard rusher in USC history. Fight on and win, Dan, class of 1962. P.S. Enjoyed Ryan's interview with Matt Leinert. Uh, I think it's morally dreary. But the connection to Mike Garrett, I mean, I would only have to be guessing off the top of my head. Did they both wear number 20? Uh, again, that's uh, – is, is Dan not telling us what the answer is there? Huh? No. I don't think he did. But, but I do think I'm the no, noblest Trojan of them all search. is Morley Drury, I believe. But uh, let me see if I can find out. I know they have a, a place in the media guide where they actually list all the uh, All-American numbers, right? Let's see. Mm -hmm. Compelling podcasting here. Yes. As we look up. uh, If you're going to send a question in, if you're going to send trivia, you got to give an answer. you got to give us the answer. I can't find. uh, Maybe he's just. Maybe he thought he was confident in Dan's ability. I don't even know. They wore numbers back then. I mean, I think for another piece of trivia, um, you know, like uh, everybody knows or should know if you're a baseball fan that, you know, Babe Ruth uh, uh, hit 60 home runs in 1927 and that he and Lou Gehrig batted, uh, you know, right after one another in the lineup. But when they started, they weren't wearing numbers. And then it eventually Lou Gehrig was number three and Babe Ruth was number four. But or, or vice versa. I'm sorry. Babe Ruth was number three and uh, Lou Gehrig was number four, I believe. And the reason they got those numbers, Babe Ruth batted third, Lou Gehrig batted fourth. So you're number three, you're number four. So I'm not even sure, you know, with some of those really early USC All-Americans, I don't know if they always had numbers for those guys. Uh, So it wasn't a number. Uh, He did rush for 1,163 yards, and that was the first time a USC player surpassed 1,000 yards. And that was the record until Mike Garrett broke it with his 1440 uh, in 1965 when he won the Heisman. So that's, Whoa, the, the, okay. that's, the that's a great, that's a great trivia piece. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Morley Drury, the noblest treasure of them all, I guess. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Let's go to an email from Steve and Poway who says, dear Ryan, Dan and Keely, thanks for continuing with your podcast through this very difficult time. It helps to keep some sense of normalcy for all of us. My question is about, in quotes quotes because this is technically when spring football should be happening I think when I think about someone like Almond Ross St. Brown whose father is a bodybuilder and the massive weight room he likely has at home and compared to other more humble situations likely faced by other players on the team it leads me to wonder whether athletes are prohibited from going to each other's homes for workouts or even informal play arounds I presume at least some of the players have a large yard or large garages enough to host a group of players is this something that the NCAA is "quote unquote" on top of? It does seem like an area they would like to manage. Thank you, Steve and Poway. All I could say is, 
that sounds like the kind of uh, college get-togethers that you don't want people doing, uh, even if it's just, you know, guys weightlifting. I mean, I just saw the other day, uh, I know the the group of Texas uh, students that uh, chartered a plane, 70 of them, and chartered a plane to go to uh, Cabo or somewhere, and that like 42 of them are sick. And then Vanderbilt had uh, some big parties, right? Be- you know, uh, oh, St. Patrick's Day and what have you, and that like 102 of them are sick now. I'm thinking probably as good as it would be to have guys going over to one another's house and, and, and the weightlifting part of it, you probably just don't want that happening now. I mean, it's just not, you know, the idea of people going to other people's houses is just not something you should be doing, I don't think. Yeah, it's, that's not an NCAA thing. That's a, you know, a public health thing. Like, you don't want to be doing that. So, uh, yeah, that's... Steve, I like, I mean, it's some, you know, it's like share the weight equipment, I guess, and have some get togethers. But at this point, uh, you can't do that, especially in these next couple of weeks where the authorities are saying that it could be, I mean, they don't even want you to go to the grocery store right now. So I, yeah, I don't think that's something that would be encouraged. Certainly not endorsed by the NCAA, but it's not going to be endorsed by the government either. Well, one of the hard things is, you know, you'd have to, you know, uh, disinfect the weight equipment every single time. I mean, like, you know. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And if you don't have a professional there, uh, you might not want to turn that over to the college kids, uh, especially in any kind of a group. Uh, that, that may not be the, the way, because the, the fact that they'd be kind of confined, uh, you know, even in a backyard, but in a garage or whatever, uh, man, the transmission, um, you know, possibilities are pretty strong uh, if you did that. So, so, you know, I, I mean, I know we, we talked about Alabama getting out the um, uh, Apple Watches and being able to monitor every one of their kids. And, you know, are they, you know, putting them on a schedule of, you know, what they're supposed to be doing when and where they can monitor every single one of them, wherever the heck they are. And is that going to be allowed and all that? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I would guess there are programs trying to figure out how to do that and how to, I mean, I always thought that the best one I always, you know, I, I don't know if you guys all knew, Rick Neuheisel was a graduate, uh, you know, UCLA quarterback, but a graduate of USC law school. And he used, he would used to, he used to read the NCA manual like a lawyer. And he was the first one that figured out, okay, uh, what does the what does it mean uh, like an accident you couldn't uh run into a kid uh, on you know uh plan you couldn't plan out uh that you were going to be somewhere but if you went to a kid's house and you just kept driving around the block eventually he's going to have to either come out or go home or whatever and you would just happen to be driving down the street you could you know roll your window down and wave and say hey how's it going and so there are people, I'm sure, who are reading those NCA rules right now and figuring out what can we do uh, that isn't totally illegal, uh, but probably uh, you're still going to have to remain uh, remote and separate from one another. I, I don't think you can even probably consider trying to do that because if, if somebody got sick and then somebody else got sick, 
and whatever, uh, you'd be in trouble if you encouraged that. I think in the beginning, some guys were having throwing sessions, but I think as it got more serious and the general public realized that, uh, they stopped or either stopped putting it on Instagram. So uh, I think <laughs> it's for sure they're, they're trying to not to not get each other sick, but also not be liable for anything uh, sickness-wise or NCAA-wise. Um, but we have one last email. Oh, sorry. Go, Dan. I was going to say uh, – and there, you know, that, you know, the throwing sessions, you could say, well, we keep, you know, easily we're six feet apart at all times. The problem is you have to clean off the football every single time you, you know, between the time you throw it and the time that guy mm-hmm. catches it, who's going to clean it off? You know, I mean, uh, it's kind of an impossibility. Yeah. So we have one final email. It's a history lesson from Dan class of 1962. Uh, it's a long one, so bear with me. He says, hi, Keely, Ryan, and Dan. As I mentioned in the email last week, Jess Hill became coach in 1951. It was pretty successful, but no- never undefeated. However, in 1952, USC led by Jim Sears, Rudy Buckkick, and Al, Al Carmichael, and they went de- defeated to... They went and defeated a strong UCLA team coached by Red Sanders and went to the Rose Bowl to play top-ranked Wisconsin, led by Alan the Horse, Amishi, I believe. Uh, They defeated Wisconsin and thus became the first PCC team to beat the Big Ten in the Rose Bowl rivalry. They went to the Rose Bowl again in 1956 but lost to Ohio State, led by Hopalong Cassidy, the Heisman Trophy winner that year. They would have have had a great team in 1956, led by C.R. Roberts and John Arnett. However, due to ticket selling, many of the team, including Arnett and Roberts, were limited to playing only five games or half of the season. Arnett gained almost 700 yards rushing in his five games and would have easily been USC's second 1,000-yard rusher if he had played the whole season. He was a favorite for the Heisman, but lost out to Paul Hornung of Notre Dame due to the limited playing time. Incidentally, USC beat Notre Dame that year without Arnett very soundly, and Notre Dame was 2-8 two, two and eight for the season. Both UCLA and USC were penalized because of the ticket selling and left the, the PCC conference because of it and helped form the AAWU conference with Cal, Stanford, and Washington. Does any of this sound familiar? The difference being that in the 50s with Jess Hill as coach and athletic director, USC did not take conference slights and penalties lightly and helped to disband the conference rather than be, be subjected to penalties that were outlandish. Sorry for the length of the comment, but I hope that it was enlightening. Fight on and win, Dan, class of 1962. I believe last week I complained about names, and this week it was much harder to pronounce all these names, so I'm sure yeah. I didn't get those right, but there you have it. No, you were close on Alan the Horse Amici. Uh, he, he scored the touchdown in the <clears throat> the greatest uh, NFL championship game, famous photo. He was a fullback for the uh, New York Giants. Uh, no, I guess, or was it the Colts? I can't even remember. I think he was for the Colts. But uh, um, I think Dan's right. He mentioned Red Sanders, and I think the one thing that Red Sanders did, he came from uh, Tennessee, and I think he was a Memphis native or whatever, but he brought in the Southeastern Conference way of doing things to the West Coast, and USC said, "Uh uh-oh, maybe we better do some of that too, and it was kind of the wild, wild west there for a while. I mean, they would do things uh, uh, the week before signing day they would literally take a player, high school player, and put him in a house where the other schools couldn't find him. I mean, as they they did amazing uh, stuff back then, and, and USC wasn't going to be outdone. So you're right, the players were, you know, selling their tickets and 
that's something that uh, I I got familiar with with Kentucky basketball, where your your tickets that you you would get season tickets. It wasn't a a sign in thing, and you didn't have to show who you were. They would just give you season tickets, and you could put them on the on the market for the you know the highest bidder. So there was a lot of a lot of interesting stuff that that went on back then. And yeah, like USC got guys that were told to sit out. Your penalty is you only get to play half your you know, senior season or whatever. And, you know, stuff that they don't do now, but, um, but those, uh, yeah, the John Arnett and CR Roberts and those guys were all, you know, that, that was, you know, some real talent. USC probably, you know, record for, uh, Rose Bowls and, and other things would be different had they, uh, had they been allowed to, you know, to play the whole season, but, uh, good stuff there, uh, uh, Dan, that's, uh, that's some good history. Hey, Keely, I think I'll get a drink of water. Can you read that one more time, please? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Alan the Horse Amici. Amici. Was it, Paul Hor- was it Paul Horning oh, that was the Notre Dame guy? Was that Paul his name? Horning. Okay, so I, I kind of know he's a Kentucky guy from Louisville, Flagey High School. And he was uh, the only player Notre Dame had on a 2-8 and eight team. He did everything, obviously, when he went to the Green Bay Packers, and he was a kicker, and he could throw it, he could catch it, he could run it. Uh, The golden boy, he was, uh, you know, and he did Notre Dame football uh, on the radio and on on replay for a number of years, and uh, a real interesting character uh, who, uh, uh, but he was one of the, I mean, to think that a player from a 2-8 and team could win the Heisman, is uh, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. But uh, uh, a lot of people, that made people mad about Notre Dame, that, that they could pull out a Heisman Trophy winner off their, like, worst season ever. Uh, only Notre Dame could do that. But, yeah, that was Paul Horning. And we would get to see him when, in the early years when USC was going to uh, South Bend, although I don't think he, he uh, you know, has been doing the games in, in recent years. But, uh he was a, an awfully talented guy. That's not to say he he didn't deserve it, but uh, it's hard to do when you're two and eight, and you know USC crushes you. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff, man. We went over an hour. Uh, wasn't uh, wasn't expecting that, but we had a bunch of good mm-hmm. topics today and a bunch of good questions. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks Keely for coming on and running the show as usual. Thank you, thank you. And Dan Weber for coming on all the insights. We appreciate that. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun, everyone. And all, all you guys out there, please stay safe. We, we want to keep bringing you these shows. We want you to be around. We want everyone, We want college football to come around. So uh, stay at home, wash your hands, do all the things, everything the authorities are asking you, wear a mask if you're outside, all those things. We want college football to come back. So we all have to do our part. And if we do, hopefully it will. Well, I, I think somebody is making the point that the harder – everybody works the better chance we got a college football coming back so uh this is a case where you know if you're a fan out there you can actually help things uh you know by doing all the social distancing stuff that you can possibly do and if enough people do it uh you've got a better chance of of bringing it back the way you want it to come back than if you don't yeah all right well that's going to wrap it up that's keely your dan weber i'm ryan abraham thanks for tuning in to the peristyle podcast and we will talk to you next time You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. 
This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.